Welcome to the monthly podcast, On the Beat, for Circulation, Arrhythmia, and Electrophysiology. I'm Dr. Paul Wong, Editor-in-Chief, with some of the key highlights from this month's issue. We'll also hear from Dr. Suraj Kappa, reporting on new research from the latest journal articles in the field. This month's issue of Circulation, Arrhythmia, and Electrophysiology has a number of groundbreaking and fascinating articles. Let's start with the first article by Christopher Andrew and Associates on the novel use of non-invasive electrocardiographic imaging in patients with arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. The authors compared 20 genotyped arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy patients to 20 control patients using electrocardiographic imaging, ECGI, a method for non-invasive cardiac electrophysiology mapping. They found that ARVC patients had a longer ventricular activation duration with a mean of 52 milliseconds versus 42 milliseconds with a p-value of 0.007, as well as a prolonged mean epicardial activation recovery interval, a surrogate for local action potential duration, with a median of 275 milliseconds versus 240 milliseconds with a p-value of 0.014. In addition, the authors observed abnormal epicardial activation breakthrough locations with regions of non-uniform conduction and fractionated electrograms. These abnormal activation patterns correlated with late gadolinium enhancement using cardiac magnetic resonance scar imaging. This study suggests that electrocardiographic imaging may be a promising tool for the diagnosis and follow-up of patients with ARVC. In the next article, Thomas Fink and Associates report the results of the prospective randomized Alster-Lost AF trial comparing ablation strategies in patients with symptomatic persistent or long-standing persistent atrial fibrillation. The study compared standalone pulmonary vein isolation, the PVI-only approach, with a stepwise approach of PVI followed by complex fractionated atrial cafe ablation and linear ablation, the substrate modification approach. Patients were randomized one-to-one to each study group. The primary study endpoint was freedom from recurrence of any atrial tachyarrhythmia at 12 months after a 90-day blanking period. 118 of 124 enrolled patients were analyzed, 61 in the PVI-only group and 57 in the substrate modification group. The pulmonary vein isolation-only group had a one-year freedom from arrhythmia recurrence of 54%, which was similar to the 57% recurrence rate in the substrate modification group, P equals 0.86. Thus, this study confirms in a population of persistent and long-standing persistent atrial fibrillation that there is no significant benefit to the addition of cafe ablation to pulmonary vein isolation only. In the next paper, John Papagiannis and associates studied AV nodal reentrant tachycardia in patients with congenital heart disease. In this multi-centered retrospective study, the authors compared catheter ablation of AV nodal reentrant tachycardia in 51 patients with complex congenital heart disease with 58 patients with simple congenital heart disease. 
there is no significant difference between the groups in terms of growth parameters, the use of 3D imaging, or type of ablation, radiofrequency versus cryoablation. The procedure times, fluoroscopy times, were longer in the complex group compared to the simple group. There were also significant differences between the groups in terms of acute successive ablation, 82% versus 97%, the risk of AV block, 14% versus 0%, and the need for chronic pacing, all significant in favor of the simple congenital heart disease group. There were no permanent AV block observed in patients who underwent cryoablation. After a mean 3.2 years of follow-up, the long-term success was 86% in the complex group and 100% in the simple group, P equals 0.004. Thus, the authors concluded that the complexity of congenital heart disease affects the outcome of AV nodal reentrant tachycardia catheter ablation. In the next paper, Malloy, Doss, and Associates studied whether the presence of abnormal intracurious peaks would indicate altered activation and might predict ventricular arrhythmias in cardiomyopathy patients. The authors examined the 99 patients with ischemic or non-ischemic cardiomyopathy undergoing primary prevention ICD implantation with a mean left ventricular ejection fraction of 27%. After a median follow-up of 24 months, 20% of patients had arrhythmic events. Using a multivariate Cox regression model that included age, left ventricular ejection fraction, QRS duration, and QRS peaks, only QRS peaks was an independent predictor of arrhythmic events with a hazard ratio of 2.1. ROC analysis revealed that a QRS peak value of greater than or equal to 2.25 identified arrhythmic events with a greater sensitivity than QRS duration, 100% versus 70%, with P less than 0.05, and a negative predictive value of 100% compared to 89% for QRS duration, P less than 0.05. Thus, the authors concluded that this novel QRS morphology index may be a promising additional tool in sudden death risk stratification. In our next paper, Yoshiyazu Azawa and Associates studied J-wave changes during atrial pacing in patients with and without idiopathic ventricular fibrillation. In eight patients with idiopathic ventricular fibrillation, in 17 patients without idiopathic ventricular fibrillation having J-waves, the J-wave amplitude was measured before, during, and after atrial pacing. All of the patients with ventricular fibrillation did not have any structural heart disease. The idiopathic ventricular fibrillation patients were younger than the non-idiopathic ventricular fibrillation patients and had larger J-waves with more extensive distribution. The J-wave amplitude decreased from 0.35 millivolts to 0.22 millivolts when the RR intervals shortened. 
a decrease of greater than equal to 0.05 millivolts in the J-wave amplitude was observed in six of eight idiopathic ventricular fibrillation patients, while the J-wave amplitudes were augmented in nine out of 17 non-idiopathic ventricular fibrillation subjects. The authors therefore concluded that the different response patterns of J-waves to rapid pacing suggest a different mechanism, that is early repolarization in idiopathic ventricular fibrillation patients and conduction delay in non-idiopathic ventricular fibrillation patients. Our final paper of the month was written by Jim T. Vehmeyer and colleagues who examined the utility of recent guidelines and consensus documents for ICD implantation for sudden death protection in adults with congenital heart disease. The authors examined an international multicenter registry having 25,790 adult congenital heart disease patients and identified all sudden cardiac death cases, which were then matched to living controls by age, gender, congenital defect, and surgical repair. They used conditional logistic regression models to calculate odds ratios and receiver operating characteristic curves. In their first analysis, they identified 124 cases and 230 controls. In total, 41% of sudden cardiac death cases and 17% of controls had an ICD recommendation based on the 2014 consensus statement on arrhythmias in adult congenital heart disease with an odds ratio of 5.9. A similar analysis of the 2015 European Society of Cardiology guidelines showed that 35% of cases and 14% of controls had an ICD recommendation, respectively, with an odds ratio of 4.8. The authors concluded that a minority of sudden cardiac death cases had an ICD recommendation according to these guidelines, while the majority of sudden cardiac death victims remained under-recognized emphasizing the need for continued critical clinical reasoning when deciding on ICD implantation in adult congenital heart disease patients. And now, here with a review of the highlights from the articles from journals throughout the world in the past month is Dr. Siraj Kappa. Thank you, Paul. Today we will be discussing hard-hitting articles that have been published within the last month across the electrophysiological literature. First, we will be focusing on the topical area of atrial fibrillation, with an initial foray into the realm of anticoagulation. The first article we will be focusing on was published by Yao et al. in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology in Volume 69, entitled, non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulant dosing in patients with atrial fibrillation and renal dysfunction. In this study, Yao et al. demonstrated that the dosing of direct oral anticoagulants in a real-world patient sample with pre-existing renal dysfunction was inappropriately dosed in as many as 43% of patients. Specifically, in these patients, there was overdosing of the direct oral anticoagulants. Moreover, as many as 13% of patients were underdosed. 
The overdosing of these patients led to increased bleeding risk without an incremental stroke benefit compared with cohorts that were appropriately dosed. In turn, underdosing led to increased stroke risk without an incremental reduction in bleeding risk. These results are provocative in that they indicate in a real-life sample of patients frequent inappropriate dosing of direct oral anticoagulants. This identifies the need for better guidelines or better adherence to guidelines in management of these patients to improve clinical outcomes. Another article within the realm of anticoagulation management of atrial fibrillation patients was published by Lapovitz et al. in Stroke in Volume 48, entitled Using Artificial Intelligence to Reduce the Risk of Non-Adherence in Patients on Anticoagulation Therapy. They demonstrated in this small randomized study that a smartphone-based artificial intelligence program could be used to monitor anticoagulation adherence and, in fact, improve it. The program utilized features available on all smartphones to identify the patient, the medication, and active ingestion of the medication by the patient in real time. With this approach, they noted that plasma drug concentration levels indicated 100% adherence in the intervention group, namely in those using the artificial intelligence program, while in the control group, only 50% of patients had adherence to medications. Overall, there was an absolute improvement in adherence amongst patients on direct oral anticoagulants by as many as 67%. These findings are provocative given data suggestive of the lack of appropriate adherence to anticoagulant therapy amongst patients. Changing paths from anticoagulation management, the next article we choose to focus on was published within the realm of cardiac mapping and ablation for atrial fibrillation. It was published by Das et al. in Jack Clinical Electrophysiology in Volume 3, entitled Pulmonary Vein Reisolation as a Routine Strategy Regardless of Symptoms, the Pressure Randomized Control Trial. In this randomized trial, Das et al. demonstrated that aggressive reevaluation of patients undergoing pulmonary vein isolation after index ablation for pulmonary vein reconnection with the intent to reablate, significantly reduced rhythmic recurrence. In addition, there was a concomitant improvement in quality of life. It has been well recognized that even in the absence of clinical recurrence, a large number of patients after index pulmonary vein isolation may have pulmonary vein reconnection. However, it has always been unclear whether aggressive reevaluation and reisolation of reconnected veins holds value has been unclear. Further study is needed to evaluate the cost effectiveness and the risk benefit ratio of such an invasive approach to reevaluate pulmonary vein isolation, irrespective of the evidence of clinical atrial fibrillation recurrence, however. Changing gears within the realm of atrial fibrillation, we will now focus on risk stratification and management. Pathakadol in Jack Clinical Electrophysiology, published in Volume 3, have progressed to complement their work on the role of risk stratification and risk factor management in patients with atrial fibrillation to evaluate the cost effectiveness and clinical effectiveness of such risk factor management clinics in atrial fibrillation that they termed the SENSE study. They demonstrated that 
there are significant costs and clinical benefits to aggressive risk factor targeted clinics for patients with atrial fibrillation. Specifically, utilizing supervised approaches to weight loss, improvements in fitness, and reduction in other clinical risk factors such as diabetes, hypertension, or other risks, that patients had a significantly decreased risk of arrhythmia occurrence. In addition to this, there was an actual incremental cost benefit of $62,000 per quality-adjusted life year saved. These findings suggest that such an aggressive risk factor-mediated approach to management of patients with atrial fibrillation holds significant promise not just in the reduction of rhythmic recurrence, but also in potential healthcare cost savings. Our next article within the realm of risk stratification and management relates to identification of patients with atrial fibrillation in otherwise normal population-wide cohorts. Kravishay et al. in Europace Volume 19 studied algorithms applied to information gathered on pulse wave signals via smartphone-based LED light slash camera lens. They demonstrated that using such a tool on patients, atrial fibrillation could be discriminated from science rhythm with sensitivity and specificity of above 95%. We recognize the critical importance of early detection of atrial fibrillation, particularly in high-risk cohorts for stroke. Early identification of patients may identify those patients for initiation of anticoagulation, even if asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, or so termed subclinical atrial fibrillation patients, which we identify by prior clinical trials, have an increased risk of stroke. However, the main hurdle to implementation of such technologies has been the high cost applied to traditional medical interventions. However, use of ever-advancing ambulatory technologies, such as smartphones or in the future smart watches, may hold the promise to identify atrial fibrillation via cheaper mechanisms. The last article within the realm of atrial fibrillation, risk stratification and management that we will choose to focus on is that by Gaita et al. published in Europace in Volume 19. They performed a systematic review and meta-analysis of existing trials regarding whether epicardial fat depot was associated with atrial fibrillation. They demonstrated via their meta-analysis that there is in fact a significant association between epicardial fat and atrial fibrillation risk, with more epicardial fat being associated with more persistent rather than paroxysmal forms of atrial fibrillation, as well as any atrial fibrillation versus none. However, the role of epicardial fat in rhythmogenesis remains unclear. While many studies suggest an association, causation remains to be proven. A recent review, however, published by Antopoulos et al. in the Journal of Physiology in June 2017, has multiple suggestive pathways by which paracrine effects of epicardial fat on the heart and vice versa may lead to alterations in normal cardiac function. Thus, while this remains an association, there are evolving principles that might further support causation. Changing topics, we will next focus on four major articles within the realm of ICDs, pacemakers, and CRT management. Lyons et al. in Jack Heart Failure, Volume 5, 
study the impact of current versus previous cardiac resynchronization therapy guidelines on the proportion of patients with heart failure eligible for therapy. They evaluate the effect of changing guidelines based on increasing bodies of evidence relate to indications for resynchronization therapy on real-world patient samples. They demonstrated that these further refined guidelines would decrease by as many as 15% those patients eligible for cardiac resynchronization therapy. However, while their study demonstrates that fewer patients may qualify as far as receiving benefit from resynchronization therapy, at least two studies published in the same month have demonstrated that even amongst patients who meet guidelines, there is severe underutilization slash under-referral for such devices. These studies by Marzik et al. in JAMA Cardiology, as well as by Randolph et al. in American Heart Journal, demonstrate that there's frequent underutilization and under-referral of patients meeting indications for resynchronization therapy. Keeping on the same topic of resynchronization therapy, Barra et al. in Heart, Volume 103, looked at sex-specific outcomes with addition of defibrillation to resynchronization therapy in patients with heart failure. They demonstrated in a multicenter observational cohort study that the addition of defibrillator resynchronization therapy in patients meeting primary prevention indications for device implant primarily conferred benefit in men rather than women. In the same month, Randolph et al. in the American Heart Journal demonstrated that resynchronization therapy offered potential greater benefits in women over men. Interestingly, this study by Barra et al. conversely demonstrates that the concomitant addition of defibrillator therapy does not necessarily further improve outcomes in women, with the primary benefit being conferred to men. Whether this differential is affected by relative rates of arrhythmogenic myopathies in men versus women remains unclear. However, the findings are provocative. Keeping within the realm of appropriateness of defibrillator therapies, Looney et al. performed a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials published in the Journal of Cardiovascular Physiology in Volume 28 on the mortality effect of ICDs in primary prevention of non-ischemic cardiomyopathies. Including six studies in the MET criteria, they found that while there was an overall significant survival benefit in patients receiving ICDs in the setting of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, once accounting for those on adequate beta blockade and ACE or ARP therapy, there was no statistical difference conferred by primary prevention ICD use. This complements an article published by al Khatib et al. in JAMA Cardiology in the same month, which also suggested that the overall mortality benefit was present in non-schemic patients, though in their case they did not evaluate the granularity of appropriateness based on current management at the time of ICD implant. These findings further previous findings from the Danish study that the survival benefit of primary prevention ICD is non-ischemic cardiomyopathy might not be anywhere near the same as those conferred with an ischemic cardiomyopathy. However, the perceived lower relative mortality benefit compared to earlier clinical trials may be partly due to improvements in the clinical and pharmacologic management of such patients. The final paper we will choose to focus on within the realm of device therapies 
was published by Dupalapudi in the Journal of Cardiovascular Electrophysiology in volume 28. They looked at the significant discrepancy between estimated and actual longevity in sanguine medical implantable cardioverter defibrillators. While amongst a small number of patients of only 40, they demonstrated that up to 74% of these patients had a significant discrepancy between actual and estimated battery life, specifically amongst current or promote defibrillator devices. This discrepancy was most significant in the 18 months prior to reaching elective replacement indication. These findings suggest the need for more frequent monitoring of such devices to look for rapid battery depletion. Switching topics away from device therapies, we next focus on the realm of sudden death and cardiac arrest. The first paper we will focus on was published in Circulation in Volume 135 by Halliday et al. and focused on the association between midwell late gadolinium enhancement and sudden cardiac death in patients with dilated cardiomyopathy and mild and moderate left ventricular systolic dysfunction. In this publication, Halliday demonstrated that the presence of midwall wall gadolinium enhancement on MRI identified patients at risk of sudden cardiac death with a hazard ratio of up to 35.9 for aborted sudden cardiac death amongst dilated cardiomyopathy patients with such midwall delayed enhancements. The incremental value of MRI is evolving in the risk stratification of patients, though it has not quite met inclusion in guidelines for decision-making regarding those who would most benefit from ICDs. However, studies like this are provocative in the sense of identifying those patients most at risk. Within the realm of cardiac arrest, we next focus on the role of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and how to improve management of these patients. Botillier et al. published in circulation in volume 135, Optimization of drone networks to deliver automated external defibrillators. They demonstrated via simulation model that using a drone network system to deliver AEDs to patients suffering sudden cardiac arrest could decrease the time to response by as much as 6 minutes and 43 seconds compared to traditional approaches such as 911 in urban areas or as much as 10 minutes and 34 seconds in rural areas. These findings are highly provocative. However, they need to be applied to clinical real-world situations. The first attempt at such was actually published this month as well by Claimson et al. in the Journal of the American Medical Association and demonstrated the feasibility of implementing a drone network within a real-world case example and the efficacy of the same. These disruptive technologies have the potential to improve emergency care and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest survival. Next, we move on to cellular electrophysiology. The first article we will focus on is by De Jesus et al., published in Heart Rhythm, Volume 14, on antiarrhythmic effects of interleukin-1 inhibition after myocardial infarction. De Jesus et al. in this study demonstrated that the use of anakinra, an interleukin-1 beta antagonist, would improve conduction velocity, calcium handling, spontaneous and inducible ventricular arrhythmias, and action potential duration dispersion in canine models. These findings of potential antiarrhythmic effects were due to increased expression of connexin 43 and sarcoplasmic reticulum calcium ATPase. While in isolation, this might seem a general article, it complements multiple recent studies that suggest a significant role for targeting inflammatory pathways 
not just in infarct pathogenesis, but in neurobogenesis. Lazarini et al., this month as well, demonstrated in the European Heart Journal the link between systemic inflammation and arrhythmic risk based on a review of the existing literature. In addition, you sell it all, demonstrated in Nature Scientific reports, the relationship between lipopolysaccharides and electrophysiologic dysfunction in stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes, which is felt to partly be mediated through interleukin pathways. Finally, though as of yet unpublished, a clinically available interleukin-1-beta inhibitor, canakinumab, has been shown in preliminary data to reduce major cardiovascular events in a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial when combined with optimal medical therapy in patients post-myocardial infarction. These potential clinical benefits complement translational benefits seen to date. However, whether these are conferred by primary inflammatory pathways, arrhythmogenic pathways, or interactions between the both remains to be seen. The next article we will focus on is by Chavot et al., published in Circulation Arrhythmia and Electrophysiology, Volume 10. They looked at induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes in producing in vivo biological pacemaker function. They demonstrated that in canines with atrioventricular block, injection of such derived cardiomyocytes into the epicardial surface of the heart demonstrate inherent pacemaker activity with global cardiac activation. In fact, this activation in pacemaker activity increased over time, up to four weeks of maturation, and also demonstrated responsiveness to epinephrine and alterations with day-night variation. However, the intrinsic rates tend to be quite low in the 50 to 60 beat per minute range. The potential to restore pacemaker activity in patients with severe conduction disease holds the potential to dynamically progress options and care for patients with electrophysiologic disease. However, even though these findings are promising, significant remaining questions include ensuring the robustness of the heart rate conferred by these biologic pacemakers, the durability of pacemaker activity, and the arrhythmogenic potential of such interventions. Within the realm of cellular electrophysiology, the final article we will choose to focus on was published by Barbic et al. in American Journal of Physiology, Heart and Circulatory Physiology in Volume 312, entitled Detachable Glass Microelectrodes for Recording Action Potentials in Active Moving Organs. They demonstrated that a new glass microelectrode could allow for determination of cellular action potential duration in actively moving organs. This is a profound potential advance in the physiologic evaluation of both in vitro, in vivo, and translational cellular models of cardiac activation. Traditional patch clamping and action potential studies required immobilization of cells being studied, whether by mechanical or pharmacologic means. However, directed efforts to immobilize cells can alter electrophysiologic parameters. The ability to record cellular action potentials in actively moving cells, for example, in the beating heart, may allow for studies of cellular electrophysiology that more closely approximate real-world physiology. Our next area of focus will be on genetic channelopathies, including long QT syndrome, Brugada, catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, and others. The article we choose to focus on this month within this realm was published by Paponi et al. in Circulation Arrhythmia Electrophysiology, Volume 10. They focus on electrical substrate elimination in 135 consecutive patients with Brugada syndrome. They demonstrated in this large cohort of patients that 
The arrhythmogenic electrical substrate associated with the Brugada syndrome primarily localized to the right ventricular epicardium, and an ablation of such region led to normalization of the electrocardiogram and non-inducibility of ventricular arrhythmias acutely in all patients and over the long term in all but two patients. These findings complement prior work by Nadamani and others that support a role for targeting a substrate in the region of the right ventricular epicardium in preventing recurrent ventricular arrhythmias in patients with Brugada syndrome and in normalizing the electrocardiographic Brugada pattern. At the translational level, prior work has demonstrated that the same SCN5A mutations associated with Brugada syndrome confer accentuated transmural gradients within the realm of the right ventricle, along with preferential prolongation of action potentials of the right ventricular epicardial myocytes. However, it remains to be seen whether the specific genetic cause of individual patients' Brugada pattern or Brugada syndrome is associated with discrete pathologic and interablation findings and success rates. Next, moving on to the realm of ventricular arrhythmias, we focus on three major articles published in the past month. The first article is published by Visegi et al. in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, Volume 69, entitled Cardiac Sympathetic Innervation for Refractory Ventricular Arrhythmias. They demonstrated that cardiac sympathetic innervation may be an effective therapy in many patients with intractable ventricular arrhythmias, with a greater than 50% reduction in sustained VT, ICD shock, transplant, or death over one-year follow-up. Not only this, but nearly one-third of patients no longer required antiarrhythmics. However, bilateral sympathectomy is far superior over left-sided only sympathectomy. Furthermore, advanced heart failure and VT cycle length were associated with poorer outcomes. These findings suggest a role for bilateral sympathectomy in management of patients presented with intractable ventricular arrhythmias. However, patient identification and selection in terms of the ideal cohorts for such therapy and how to identify such cohorts remains to be seen. Our next article regards advances in attaining epicardial access. DiBiase et al. published in Heart Rhythm, Volume 14, the initial international multicenter human experience with a novel epicardial access needle embedded with a real-time pressure frequency monitor to facilitate epicardial access. They look specifically at feasibility and safety of this novel approach. While in only 25 patients, they did demonstrate that epicardial access could be successfully obtained with only one complication of a delayed pericardial effusion. With evolving indications for epicardial access, including for left atrial appendage occlusion, epicardial ganglion modulation, and ventricular arrhythmia mapping and ablation, development of novel tools to minimize the risks associated with epicardial ablation, particularly in individuals who do not perform it routinely, is critical. However, whether these variable approaches hold significant advances in randomized trials beyond traditional approaches remains to be seen. Within the realm of ventricular arrhythmias, the last article we will choose to focus on was published by Acosta et al. in Europace Volume 19. They looked at the long-term benefit of first-line peri-implantable cardioverter defibrillator implant ventricular tachycardia substrate ablation in secondary prevention patients. This study complemented prior data from SMASH-VT and VTAC, supporting a role for early ablation to reduce future arrhythmia events in patients receiving defibrillators. In their study, they demonstrated that early ablation 
was associated with a decreased recurrence of ventricular arrhythmias and defibrillator shocks over an average follow-up of almost four years. However, interestingly, patients with lower ejection fractions, namely less than 35%, received less benefit, though this was mostly conferred by, while having similar frequency of VT recurrence, having an overall lower burden compared to those who did not have ablation. Practice patterns continue to vary in the decision-making with regards to performing early ablation in such patients. Furthermore, whether or not a mortality benefit exists with early ablation remains relatively unclear and unproven. However, there is an evolving body of evidence to support the notion that aggressive early intervention with invasive procedures in patients for receiving ICDs and at high risk for ventricular arrhythmias may make sense. The final article we will focus on that has been published in the past month is published by Turagam et al. in the International Journal of Cardiology, Volume 236, entitled Practice Variation in the Reinitiation of Fetalide, an Observational Study. Turagam et al. surveyed 347 providers in the U.S. and worldwide and demonstrated significant practice variability when reinitiating dufetilide. They know that up to 21% of providers always admitted patients to the hospital for dufetilide reinitiation, while 37% of physicians admitted patients less than 10% of the time. Interestingly, the duration off of dufetilide, ranging from anywhere from three days to more than a year, did not necessarily significantly affect the rate of decision to reinitiate dufetilide after prior cessation. One key finding of this was that 4% of physicians reported major adverse events with drug reinitiation in patients. This was despite the vast majority of these patients tolerating de novo initiation. Given the prorhythmic effects of antiarrhythmic drugs, strategies to reduce this potential risk are critical. In fact, multiple groups such as the Cardiac Safety Research Consortium within the same month have sought to publish recommendations for long-term electrocardiographic monitoring in drug development. It must be realized that consideration of the impact of antiarrhythmic drug management may not always be well outpined by existing protocols, and thus further studies likely require to inform current clinical practice. It was my pleasure to introduce to you some of the major hard-hitting articles published in the past month across the electrophysiologic literature. While not necessarily touching on every single major advance, we hope to identify those that hold potential major immediate clinical potential or those that hold potential future advancements within our field. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this month's podcast, On the Beat, Circulation, Arrhythmia, and Electrophysiology, which had a number of groundbreaking and fascinating studies. See you next month.